Good morning, Three Rivers. If you have a Bible, I'm going to invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 12. It is a privilege to get to teach the Bible um, to you. And so um, we're in Genesis chapter 12. This is part two of Abram's story. Last week, uh, we saw Abram's great faith. And today we get to see his faith flop. Uh, I told you last week that Bible characters are never meant to be models for morality, but rather mirrors for identity. Uh, If you read your Bible and you just say, well, whatever Abram did is good enough for me, I'm going to do that too. That is not a good practice for today's passage, right? Because he's going to make a mistake, big mistake. And um, we don't want to model what he does. We want to identify with his struggle and with his challenges. And so we look at that from Genesis chapter 12. Beginning in verse 10 today, and we're looking at the idea of the promised blessing being jeopardized. The jeopardized blessing. God had promised to bless Abram to make him a father of a great nation and that through all through him, all other nations and peoples and families of the earth would be blessed. And he believes God and he goes and he obeys. But there's going to be a challenge to his faith today. Let's look at Genesis chapter 12. Beginning in verse 10, Genesis 12, verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me. But they will let you live. So say that you are my sister. That it may go well with you. Or may go well with me. Because of you. And that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt. The Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her. They praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake. He dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would speak today through your powerful word and that by your Holy Spirit, you would help us to Apply your word today to our lives, that you would speak to us and teach us and lead us into all truth. Convict us of sin and righteousness and the judgment to come. And Father, show us that it is through testing that you refine our faith. Do that today and conform us more and more into the image of your son. In Jesus name. Amen. So last week we saw... The obedience of Abram. He faithfully trusts God's word. He leaves his family. He leaves his homeland to pursue the land that God had promised him. This was not easy for him to do. He's 75 years old. 
He does not have any children. His wife is barren. And God tells him, you're going to have a son. You're going to, I'm, I'm going to make a nation out of you. And all the families of the earth will be blessed. And I want you to go to a land. I'm not going to tell you where it is yet. I just want you to go. This is not easy for Abram. And so we see that following the Lord by faith is rarely easy. And yet Abram goes. And there's this great demonstration of his faith in the Lord as he packs everything up, including his family. And he goes, treks all the way through Canaan, proclaiming the name of the Lord. He had left his moon-worshipping family. He left for a land which he did not know where he was going. He treks 800 miles that takes him east to west, across Mesopotamia, down the east of the Mediterranean, where he descends through Damascus into Canaan, which God then promised to him. And this whole trek of faith, this becomes a tour of faith as he's proclaiming the name of the Lord in the midst of a pagan country. But it wasn't easy. If you're Abram, you're probably thinking, I can't wait to get there. We're going to immediately possess the land. Let's go. Only to find that when he gets there, the Canaanites possess the land. They have infested the land that God has promised to Abram. And you can imagine as he's building these altars and he's worshiping the Lord... You have to think that the Canaanites probably scoffed at him and made fun of him in his preaching. He was met with constant opposition. Not to mention the fact that Sarai was barren, unable to have children. And Abram was supposed to be the father of this great nation. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever trusted the Lord and followed him where he called you to go only to find that when you did that, things didn't work out the way you planned once you got there? And as if things couldn't get more difficult for Abram, he's obeying the Lord, he's trusting the Lord, and he goes and he goes to the land and he continues on. Verse 9 says that he journeyed on through down to the Negev, he's, he's in Canaan, he's trusting the Lord. Oh, but verse 10. Verse 10 says, there was a famine in the land. A famine. And so now in verses 10 to 13, we see the first big point of this text is that great acts of faith are often followed by spiritual tests in famine. Great acts of faith are often followed by famine. It says that there was a famine in the land. If you study the Old Testament, even the New Testament, you'll see that famines are often Signs of judgment, but it's also a time of God testing his people and moving his people and interacting with his people. And so if you just give a, a general overview of the Old Testament, you're going to see that famines were God's way of, of testing. In Genesis 26, very similar story to Abram happens in the life of Isaac. There's a famine where he stays. He actually does the same thing Abram's going to do where he lies about his relationship uh, with Rebecca, and he has this encounter with Abimelech, and it all starts with a famine. In Genesis 41, there's another famine in the land that leads Jacob to uproot his family, to move to Egypt, ultimately being saved by his son Joseph, whom his brothers had sold him off into slavery. Uh, but, but it's a famine that starts this whole thing. Uh, in Ruth chapter 1, there's a famine in the days where the judges ruled that leads Naomi 
and her husband to move to Moab, where there, uh, through lots of different circumstances, Naomi is united with a young girl named Ruth, who then comes back home, marries Boaz, and she becomes the grandmother of King David. There's a famine in the land in David's day that leads to judgment on Saul's house in 2 Samuel 21. In 1 Kings 17, there's a famine in Elijah's day that leads him to saving the widow from Zarephath. And in Nehemiah 5, it, there's a famine that leads Nehemiah to care for the oppression of the poor. And even in the New Testament, you're familiar with the story in Luke chapter 15 of the prodigal son. It's a famine that leads him where he spends all of his money that his father had given him. He spends it all. A famine forces him to hire himself out into the house of another man where he ends up eating with the pigs, comes to his right frame of mind, and then goes back to his father's house. Famines are intentional in Scripture, usually. And it is God-ordained ways of God bringing His people to a breaking point in order to test their faith. And to accomplish his redemptive purposes. So here we are. Abram has just displayed great faith. And now his faith is going to be tested. Because there's a famine in the land. In other words. Faith is regularly followed by famine. Have you ever experienced a great spiritual victory in your life. Only to immediately go through a dry spell. Elijah did the same thing, right? One day he's he's calling down fire from heaven and just blows up the prophets of Baal, their worship service, and he just has this great stand on that mountain. And then the next day he's suicidal and he's running away from Jezebel. He goes from this great spiritual high to a famine. Have you ever been there? Everything's going well, you're serving the Lord, you're trusting the Lord, and all of a sudden some unexpected thing blindsides you and you're wondering, where did this come from? And you might even be tempted to question, God, where, what happened? Where did you go? I mean, God, we were, we were doing really well, right? And then all of a sudden, where did you go? And I'm, I'm experiencing this difficulty, this famine. Could I just... Submit to somebody, maybe you're going through that right now, that perhaps the reason you're going through a difficult time is not because God is against you, but rather maybe He's for you. And He is refining your faith through testing. Now, I don't like tests. Nobody like te likes tests. When I was in college, I came back to my dorm room dejected after a biology test that was very difficult. And I, I got back to my room and I told my roommate, I was like, man, I'm, I'm, I'm just pretty sure I, I just bombed my biology test. And he said, man, man, you studied so hard for that. Man, just be more positive. I'm sure you did fine. I said, okay, dude, I'm positive. I failed my biology test, right? We don't like tests. We don't enjoy testing. But testing is necessary, especially in a life of following Jesus. The truth is, our faith is always going to be tested. And the test may not be as immediate as Abram's is here, but I promise you, it will come. If you decide to follow Christ and to, to live a life of faith, trusting in Him, your life will be tested. And it's better for you not to be surprised. If you're surprised by it, you're, you're, you're going to be in trouble. But if you expect it, as James tells us in James chapter 1, verse 2 through 4, he says, count it all joy. 
Yes. Another biology test. Because I just failed the last one, right? Yes. A test. Count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The reason God brings his people through tests is to refine them and to make you complete. And so what does Abram do? During the famine, Abram does the natural thing. He goes to Egypt until the famine ends. It was natural for him to go to Egypt because Egypt was where the Nile River was. So if he goes to where the Nile was, the the Nile was a place where there was still food. Egypt was still able to endure even during a famine. But there's a problem here. It says in verse 10, there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there for the famine was severe. He's not planning to stay. It says that he sojourns. The problem is he doesn't consult with God. He just does it. He's acting naturally. There's no mention of him seeking the will of God in this matter. He just assumes, well, okay, I'm going to I'm going to go to Egypt. And, and I would say that Abram's going to Egypt here. It's not intentional sin as much as it is a reflexive turn to his own devices. He doesn't deny God. He just forgets about it. And are we not like Abram? Right? When trials come, we automatically go into survival mode and we start trying to put put the sandbags up, get ready for the flood. Oh my goodness, everything's happened. And then all of a sudden, at the end of it all, we say, oh yeah, God, could you please bless me in my attempt to try to preserve myself? Abram here goes to Egypt not really consulting with the Lord in this. He's been trusting the Lord all of this time and now a famine comes and he just goes to Egypt. Look at verse 11. Verse 11 says, When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife, and then they will kill me, but they will let you live. So now he's still going into self-preservation mode. Abram is going to convince Sarai to tell everyone in Egypt that she is his sister. That's what he says in verse 14 or verse 13. Say that you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared for your sake. This is a real manly thing to do, right? Hide behind your wife so that you don't have to die. Now, Abram's not technically telling the, a lie. He's kind of a half-truth. Because technically, Sarah is his half-sister. They have the same daddy, but they have different mamas. But what is Abram doing? He's trying to protect himself, right? He has faith in this great God who makes great promises to him. But all of a sudden, a famine comes. His faith starts to get tested. And then he starts trying to preserve himself. Hey, Sarah, listen, you're beautiful. Even at 65, this, this woman is beautiful. And the Egyptians... They're going to see you and they're going to want to marry you. And if they do that, they're going to kill me and just take you. So just tell them that you're my sister. This is a lapse in Abram's faith. He moves from walking by faith to working in the flesh. And, and, I, and I can't blame him because what has God just promised him? Abram, you're going to be the father of a great nation. Abram tries to connect the dots and says, 
I can't be the father of a great nation if I'm dead. So I'm going to try to preserve myself. Now, evidently, Sarah is a knockout, even in her 60s. And so she's sure to capture the Egyptians' attention. And that was going to be a big problem. And so what Abram's counting on is this ancient law of hospitality, this custom that would buy them time to escape. You see, there was this rule back then that if you wanted to marry a a woman and her father was not available, then you would have to talk to her brother. So Abram figures, if someone tries to marry Sarai, I will just tell them I'm the brother so they'll have to negotiate. That'll buy us some time so we can get out of here. And he justifies it with a half-truth because he knows when he says, it's my sister, he's not technically lying, but he's also knowing, I know how the Egyptians are going to take this when I tell them. And his motivation is so that it may go well with me, that I may live. He was concerned that the Egyptians would kill him. So for the good of their marriage and for the good of the promise of God, they're going to deceive the Egyptians to protect Abram's life. And I can just imagine as Abram's walking into Egypt, he's congratulating himself. Good job, Abram. I'm so wise and forward looking. I'm being responsible here. I need to help God. The only problem is, is that God never asked him for his help. Abram's not acting by faith. God is not in the driver's seat here. Abram is. And so his little plan of self-preservation is about to come crashing in on itself. First thing we see in this this text is that if you're going to follow the Lord, that after great victories in faith, you can expect some famines. You can expect testing. And Abram here is failing the test. The second thing that we see in verses 14 to 16, is that the covenant blessings are going to be endangered by unbelief. The blessings that come in the covenant are going to be endangered by Abram's unbelief. You see, Abram had forgotten one little detail. As he's working all of this out, hey Sarah, you just tell him that you're my sister and we'll, we'll play this out and, and it'll be cool and, and we'll be like spies in Egypt and, and everything's going to be fine because the Egyptians are going to go along with it. He forgets one little detail. Pharaoh. You see, the average Egyptian would have happily negotiated with Abram for his sister. But not Pharaoh. Abram didn't think about this. Pharaoh takes what Pharaoh wants. And there's two things that are going to happen here. First thing is that Sarai suffers. She suffers. Look at verse 14. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Everything's going according to plan. Verse 15. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Rut-row, raggy. It's not good. And Abram can't do a thing about it. He's watching his wife, the, the queen mother, The woman through whom the seed of promise will come. Being taken into Pharaoh's harem. This is great. You know Abram's thinking. What's going on in there? What's going on in those chambers? And he's just just having these dreams. These thoughts. Is my wife now wrapped up in Pharaoh's arms? Pharaoh, Pharaoh. Oh baby, please let my wife go. Right? Please let her go. And he, he can't do a thing about it. 
All of his scheming, all of his preservation, all of his manipulation has backfired on him. Sarai's so beautiful. He's just thinking, surely she's going to become one of Pharaoh's entertainments. And from then on, life would have just taken its natural course. You can imagine, Sarai goes on to marry Pharaoh. They have children. She becomes the queen of Egypt. She would have lived and died in Egypt. She would have had her place in a royal tomb. And her excavated mummy would be grinning up at us today in the British Museum. Great job, Abram. Well done. And the truth is, when we act in unbelief, other people may suffer. Abram acts in unbelief and he has jeopardized the blessing that God has promised to him by allowing his wife to be taken into Pharaoh's home. Not only does Sarai suffer, but we see secondly that Abram prospers. Look at verse 16. While Sarai suffers, Abram prospers. Verse 16. And for her sake... Pharaoh dealt well with Abram and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys and camels. Abram prospers. And this is the excruciating moral twist to the story. Pharaoh was so pleased with obtaining Sarai that he made Abram a very rich man. And you can tell by all the stuff that he gave him, but specifically two of the gifts, the two last things mentioned, the female donkeys and the camels. Now, female donkeys, I did not know this until I studied this. Female donkeys were more controllable than their male counterparts. They were more dependable for riding. And they were the choice of what the rich people would ride when they were traveling in Egypt. They were like the Lexuses or the BMWs of the day. Right. If you want to drive a Lexus on the Nile, you get a female donkey, not the male donkey. Now, the camels and notice plural camels had just been introduced in this culture in in human history. They had just been domesticated as animal for animals and they were extremely rare. Not many people rode camels during this day. And so these were symbols of prestige for show. Right. This this wasn't really the car that you want to just drive all the time it's the one you keep in your garage just to show all your buddies when they come over and the twist here's the twist the faithless deceitful abram was loaded with luxurious things while his beloved wife spent frantic days and sleepless nights in pharaoh's harem all of his riches were only a reminder that he had lost what was most precious to him, his wife. Abram, what does it matter if you gain the whole world and all of Pharaoh's treasures, but you lose your wife, the mother of all blessing? My Old Testament professor, Alan Ross, says this about this passage. He says, once again, in Genesis, through fear and disobedience, the intimacy of the man and the woman is broken. Once again, someone has taken that which God has put off limits. But this time, God would prevent it from going further for his word of promise was in jeopardy. This is not the first time that a man and woman have been separated through sin. But this time, God's going to step in because his word is at stake. And so we see the third point of this text. First point, you're going to be tested. After great acts of faith, there's going to be spiritual famine, times of testing. The second thing is that unbelief can jeopardize 
the blessings that you might in, enjoy in the covenant. The third point here in verses 17 to 20 is that the covenant promises here are preserved by the Lord's intervention. God himself is going to step in and intervene despite Abram's lack of faith. Look at verse 17. The first thing we see here is that Pharaoh is going to be plagued by the Lord. Verse 17. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Now, after Pharaoh takes Sarai, we're told that Pharaoh and his house, all of his servants, everyone in his home were afflicted with great plagues. And the reason that they probably trace it back to Sarai is because she's the only one in the whole house who's not suffering from these plagues. They put two to two together and realize something is connected between the skin disease and, and this woman here. And because Pharaoh took Sarai, he had unknowingly dishonored Abram. Remember the promise back at the beginning of this chapter? What did God tell Abram? He said, those who bless you, I will bless. But those who curse you, I will curse. Pharaoh is experiencing Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. He is experiencing the cursing of God. He has unknowingly cursed or dishonored Abram by taking his wife. Now, I want you to remember, who is Abram writing to? He is writing to the Israelites who have just come out of Egypt being delivered by God through plagues. God has just plagued Egypt ten times in the book of Exodus. And so God is reminding his people, even through the story of their forefather, that God is faithful to keep his promises even when his people act unfaithfully. Even when Abram messes everything up, the Lord has to step in and intervene. And he's even willing to plague the Pharaoh in Egypt. The truth is only God could have rescued Sarah at this point. Abram had done everything that he could do and he had made a big mess of it. And yet there were going to be times in the experience of of Israel as a nation where God would not deliver his people. God would not step in and intervene. God would allow them to be taken into captivity by Babylon. God would allow them to be judged. And so the point here is not that God will always rescue us from our unbelief. But at times God may deliver his people. And he does here because his word is at stake. God would say something similar to the people in Ezekiel's day. When he talks about the redemption of Israel, he says, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. God is very concerned about the holiness of his name. And he's not going to let Sarah be taken into Pharaoh's harem. He is going to rescue her. So Pharaoh is plagued. But verses 18 to 19, we see that Abram is going to be rebuked. Look at verse 18. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. That last line where he says, now then, here is your wife. Take her and go in the Hebrew. It's literally four words. Here, wife, take, go. 
Like you can just see Pharaoh's fed up, right? Probably because he's still dealing with the plagues. He probably would kill Abram if he wasn't in so much pain. Just get, take, wife, go, get, go. He's had it. And he's rebuking Abram for his more, he's taking the moral high ground and he's rebuking Abram for his unbelief. It's interesting here that Abram is the one who appears to be the sinner and Pharaoh is the saint. This is not the best moment for Abram. A godly man being rebuked for his untruthfulness by an idolater and a pagan. Now you can imagine, now I would say up until this point, Moses has not made any claim, moral claim, about what Abram did, whether it was right or wrong. He just told the story. But if you're wondering what Moses might have thought about this, Moses here is telling the children of Israel, when you see Pharaoh, the godless Pharaoh, rebuking Abram, Moses is telling you that Abram's faith had failed here. Here we see the heir of the covenant being reprimanded and rebuked by the leader of a foreign nation. And so Abram learns a valuable lesson. Sinful acts can never save God's people. It's foolish to try and deliver yourself from danger through deception. And we should learn a lesson here too through Abram's life. Even your heroes of the faith are sinners saved by grace. Even the people you look up to, the people you respect the most, they're sinners. And they need grace. This is why this whole talk about Abram, God called Abram not because he was a righteous man, but because God was gracious to Abram and called him out from idolatry. This is why Romans chapter 4 and Genesis, uh, Galatians chapter 3 gives Abram as the picture that we are saved not because of works, but because of faith, grace, through faith in the Lord Jesus. Just as Abram was saved by his faith, we also are children of Abram when we have the faith that Abram had. And it is not a perfect faith. It is a faith that is going to struggle. It's a faith that's going to falter. It's going to fail. It's a faith that is that is going to struggle. And here's the deal. You are not saved today by the strength of your faith. You are saved today by the object of your faith. You are not saved by how well you believe. You are saved by the righteousness of whom you believe. It is in Christ we believe. And he is the reason that God shows us mercy. Not because we have a lot of faith. But because we have a little faith. The faith of a mustard seed in a great and glorious and holy God. Who was crucified for our sins in our place. And bore God's wrath in our stead. That's the only reason that Abraham or you or me can be made right with God. Your faith is always dependent upon the grace of God. Abram's faith here falters. In verse 20, we see that Abram is expelled. Look at verse 20. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Abram is deported. He's expelled. He's kicked out of the country. 
You can imagine this. This was not a real proud moment for Abram. He's got his head down and his tail tucked between his legs. And yet. And yet. It says that Pharaoh allowed him to leave with everything that he had. All that wealth. All those servants. All those donkeys and camels that he had accumulated. Pharaoh got, or Abram got to leave, just as the, uh, the Israelites would leave Egypt having plundered Egypt. Abram, in a sense, despite his unbelief, walks away blessed. But hold up. Before you get real excited and say, man, must be nice to be Abram. He's got all these new servants. He's got these new donkeys to ride. He, he's got these camels to show off in his garage. Look at all the wealth. Look how God blessed him. Make no mistake about it. Sin always has consequences. Even when it appears that Abram is prospering. There's two big problems with this wealth. His wealth. That he accumulates in Egypt is going to give him headaches later on. In fact, you don't even have to wait very long. You don't have to wait till Genesis chapter 13. The first issue that happens with his wealth arises when, with a dispute between Abram and Lot, his nephew. Because there's so many servants and so much wealth, they have to split ways. Lot goes his way, Abram goes his way, and what happens? Lot ends up getting kidnapped. Genesis 14, you've got this big war, Abram has to go to battle. Lot ends up living in Sodom and Gomorrah. You get the point, right? All because of this wealth that he accumulated that causes Lot and Abram to have to split. The second issue, and probably the the, the worst issue, is that it says that he took some female servants from Egypt. It just so happens, we find out in Genesis chapter 16, that Abram has this little encounter with a woman named Hagar, who is one of his Egyptian maidservants. Make no mistake about it. You may temporarily get away with sin, but God is not mocked. And we will always reap what we sow. And although Abram walks away appearing to be blessed and appearing to be no big deal. Woo, that was a close one. We got out unscathed. He did not get out unscathed. Although he's the man of faith. Sin had consequences. And yet the main point here. And I think the most important important point here is that although Abram was to become the father of a great nation. What we see here is an imperfect, sinful man with an imperfect faith. And yet his faith continues to grow through testing. And we see that Abram is not the ultimate savior of Israel. The point here is that Abram is not the one that we should have our faith in. Thousands of years later, there would come another descendant of Abraham, the promised seed, whom Paul speaks about in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. Paul says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Therefore... Jesus Christ is the one through whom the whole world will be 
blessed. He is the fulfillment of every promise made to Abraham. He is the one through whom global blessings will be fulfilled. Jesus is the ultimate heir of Abram and he is the true man of faith. Think of it. Jesus did not stumble when trials came. His faith never wavered. He did not look to his own devices, but only to God. And yet Hebrews told us that he had to learn to trust the Lord through suffering. Even Jesus was tested. Abram was a great man of faith, but Christ is the perfect man of faith. Abram left his home and family in Ur to go to an unknown land, but Christ left heaven in obedience to the Father's call. Abram is known for both his great faith and his great failure. But Jesus' life was one of incomparable faith. He never sinned. He lived his life. He endured everything you and I have endured, yet he did it without sin. Everything he did in life, Life was by faith from beginning to end. And here is the benefit for you and for me. My goal this morning is not for you to look at the life of Abram and say, how can I emulate Abram? Because Abram was just like us. He was faltered. He was sinful. He struggled. What I want us to do is to see the imperfection of Abram and lift your eyes up by faith to the greater seed of Abraham. Jesus Christ, who fulfilled all righteousness for you today. And here is the benefit for you and me. As Christians who have been born again by the Holy Spirit, we are now in Christ. We are in the man of faith. Jesus not only saves us, but empowers us to live a life of faith. So, when trials come, and by the way, they will, they're coming. Do not turn to your own resources or your own strength, but turn to Christ and he will sustain your faith. I sang this song at, a, at a, my sister-in-law's wedding and it goes so well with what we're talking about today. The Gettys wrote this. Listen to these words. When trials come, no longer fear. For in the pain, our God draws near. To fire a faith worth more than gold. And there his faithfulness is told. Within the night I know your peace. The breath of God brings strength to me. And new each morning mercy flows as treasures of the darkness grow. I turn to wisdom not my own. For every battle you have known. My confidence will rest in you. Your love endures and your ways are good. When I am weary with the cost, I see the triumph of the cross so in its shadow I shall run till he completes the work begun. And one day all things will be made new. I'll see the hope that you've called me to. And in your kingdom paved with gold, I will praise your faithfulness of old. Church, when we are faithless, he is faithful. Trust in him. And I'll close with this verse in First Peter chapter 1. As you experience testing in your own life. Three rivers in this rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise 
and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let your faith, as it is being tested, let your refined faith be led to praise the Lord. If you've gone through testing today, today's the day to worship. To worship that God loves you enough to not leave you alone. He loves you enough to refine you, to conform you more and more into His image. We're going to sing together with that truth. Would you pray with me as we prepare our hearts to respond in worship? Father, in Jesus' name, help us to apply the words of this passage to our hearts today and to our lives. Father, there are some of us who are coming out of testing, coming out of a famine. There are some of us who are in the famine, that are in the testing now. And there are some of us who are about to go through testing. Father, whatever stage we're in, I pray that you would give your people grace. Father, that we would not reject trials, but we would rejoice in trials, as James says. Father, wherever your people are today, in this building, whatever stage of life, would you minister grace to them? And help them to trust you. Not to try to preserve themselves. But to know that you are working all things together for their good. Conform us into your image today. Refine our faith. That our faith would be pure. And would be found to glorify you. When you return. In Jesus name. Amen.